Um, on your insert that you have, um, the um, place to take notes and all of that, we um, recognize that it says January 6th on there because none of you came last, well, a few of you came last week. We apologize about that, certainly. But uh, um, we just used last week. So we know that it's the 6th, write the 13th on there, and all is good, okay? This morning as we get back into Hebrews, after our long break in Psalms and Thanksgiving and Christmas, it is fitting that on this Sunday, which is our first Sunday of gathering in 2019, that we are going to be looking forward by looking back, and that is by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And it is even more fitting that our topic this morning as we continue in our study of Hebrews chapter 9 is eternal redemption as we can see that laid out in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 12. Now, we read this earlier, and so I'm not going to take the time to read that passage again because we already read it once. In chapter 8, our author establishes or really reestablishes, reaffirms what he has been talking about constantly throughout this book, and that that is Jesus is better. In chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, he makes it very clear that Jesus' ministry is more excellent, that it is better. It is the one that is above all other ministries. He makes it very clear in chapter 8, verse 7, that the salvation of Jesus is better than any other. It says in verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. If what the law did, if what the old did was good enough, there would have been no need for anything else. But because Jesus Christ came, He did it once for all. Clearly, He is better. Jesus, our author is telling us, is the single final sacrifice that is enough and that indeed is forever. In chapter 8, verse 13, we read this. When He said a new covenant... He has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. What he is saying here, in effect, is that this has all been in place and it's been ready for Jesus to step onto the scene and to do what he did so that the old then that is growing obsolete would be put away, would be finished, would be done with, and that we would move forward with Jesus being the better sacrifice. And that's exactly what is going on here. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and earthly sanctuary. Even the very language of the author, he is saying to us, that is that which was. This is that which is. The old is gone. It is past. The new is here. And it will stay here. And it will be throughout all of eternity. Now, I want to remind you, because we haven't been in Hebrews for quite a while, I want to remind you that when we're reading all about this, it wasn't as if God all of a sudden had to come to grips with the fact it seems like this isn't working. It seems like the old is having some problems. It seems like the old is requiring the priest to do it over and over again, and they have to deal with their own sin, and what am I going to do? And And he was wringing his hands and wondering what's next. That's not how it worked. 
As we have seen throughout Hebrews over and over again, the plan of God was this very thing. It was laid out in the beginning throughout the entire Old Testament that the law would be given, that it would be shown to be inadequate at every single turn. It wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be good enough. It wouldn't be permanent. It wouldn't be forever. Something had to come that would make it better. That the Old Covenant, as we have seen in Sunday school for the last three years, is pointing toward Jesus, pointing toward Jesus, pointing toward Jesus. It is about Jesus over and over again. The Old, according to verse 1, had divine worship. How could one possibly, how could one possibly go through all of the things that the Old Testament required one to go through when it came to sacrifices? How could one go through all of the things that was required of one to to approach God and to take the animal and have the priest do all of the work and understand the whole setup of the tabernacle and then the temple? How could one possibly go through that and not worship? Well, and the answer is, is simply this. They could go through that and not worship if it was, if it was just a religious activity. They could go through all of that and not worship at all if it was just jumping through the hoops, if they were trying to earn their way, if they were trying to do enough to get God's good pleasure to be given to them. Doing that then and doing that now always, always takes our eyes off of God. If we are going through the religious activities that we're going through in order to say, I went through them, that will always take your eyes off of God. Always. It puts it on the activity. It puts it on what you're doing. Am I doing enough? Have I done it right? Have I done it often enough? Have I done it in such a way that it'll be pleasing to God? Is it good enough? Have I finally succeeded in this thing? Was it enough? Divine worship. Earthly sanctuary always, always wanted to have the worshiper look toward Jesus. Always. And that's exactly what needs to go in our lives too. Earthly worship is about divine worship and it's about having us turn to God and look at Him. It's not, it's not going through the hoops. It's not jumping through. It's not doing this and this and thinking, is it finally good enough? Can I finally have that guilt relieved? Can I finally have that pressure taken away? That's not what it's all about because if that's the case, you'll never get there. You'll always be just a little bit frustrated because it's never good enough. But if you go through the worship, if you go through the process, if you go through all of the things that are, that are presented for us in a physical way and you're keeping your eyes upon Jesus, all of a sudden the physical tends to fade away and it doesn't have nearly the significance that it did a moment ago. And all of a sudden you see God. And you think, thank you God for using this earthly system, this earthly thing to help me see you. Thank you for using this thing that I might go beyond this and I would see you, and I would worship you. We talked about worship in Sunday school this morning, and it's incredibly important that we understand that that's what it needs to be, that if we come into any kind of an earthly system, and we allow the earthly system to be the main point, we're in big trouble. But if we allow God to be the main point, then the flaws and the inadequacies and the difficulties and the weaknesses of that earthly system they become insignificant because we see Jesus. I am convinced 
that it is only when we are putting all of our all of our eggs in one basket, that basket of that earthly system, that the earthly system becomes the thing whereby we are griping and complaining and have all sorts of problems with it. We look at it and we say it's inadequate. Well, of course it's inadequate. It'll never be good enough. But you know what? It's incredibly adequate to direct our attention toward God if our heart is in the right place. And that's what God is wanting us to understand here. In verses 2 through 5 of chapter 9, what the author of Hebrews does is he goes through and he gives us a little bit of a picture of what the tabernacle slash temple was like. Now you understand that the tabernacle was that that was portable. The tabernacle was that one that traveled through the wilderness with them. That was the one that was broken down and went with the nation of Israel from place to place. And then the temple was built in a permanent place and it was the permanent place and it was just it was a replica of what the tabernacle looked like it was just a permanent situation so when he is talking about this he's talking about tabernacle temple really it's focusing on the tabernacle a little bit because the tabernacle was portable because it moved around a little bit it helps prove his point that Jesus is better because Jesus is permanent even if you're thinking in terms of the temple he proves his point that Jesus is better because the, ta- the temple is no longer there. It, it's not permanent anymore. It's now gone. And so we see that Jesus is better. So what he does in these couple of verses here is he just gives us a little bit of a picture of what the temple slash tabernacle was all about. He says there was a tabernacle prepared. There was an outer one in which the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. And it had the golden altar of incense, and the Ark of Covenant covered it with it on all sides in gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. What the author of Hebrews is doing is this. He is understanding who his audience is, and he understands that his audience knows this stuff quite well. Those that read this or or had this read to them for the very first time, they knew exactly what the tabernacle looked like. They knew exactly what was in the tabernacle. They knew all about the tabernacle without any problem at all. And so what the writer is doing is he simply is, is making sure that they understand that that thing existed, but that's not the point. The point is Jesus. And he's going he's gonna to get there in just a moment. The point is Jesus. As he has been telling us throughout this letter over and over again, Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than Joshua. Jesus is better than Aaron. Jesus is better than the offerings from the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. Jesus is better uh, than the area where it was offered in worship. Jesus is a better way to God. His point is to not go into great detail with the tabernacle. His point is to simply say, it existed, and you know it existed, but you know that it was inadequate. Now, the tabernacle is an incredibly important thing. Nonetheless, there are some 50 chapter, chapters excuse me, 50 chapters dedicated to, under, to the tabernacle and how it was built and what it looked like in the Old Testament. You can read all sorts of incredible details in Exodus chapter 25 through 40 about what's going on with the tabernacle. Obviously, this was important to God. It was important to God because this is where they worshipped and this is how they worshipped. Now, the audience would have known this, but let me just share with you a couple things here. The courtyard, the outer 
courtyard was 150 feet long, 50 yards. It was 75 feet wide or 25 feet uh, yards wide. On one side, there was one single gate that was at least 30 feet wide, one way in and out of this massive structure. Uh, that certainly reminds us of what the New Testament says about Jesus is the way. I'm the door. I'm the gate. There was just one way into this thing. It was massive, 30 feet, but there was just one in all of this massive structure here. It is interesting that he simply says, this is what it was. This is what it's about. And, and he simply talks about it in brief terms. There was a holy place, and then there was a holy of holy place. And once a year, one person went into that holy of holy place. And what the tabernacle had set up in very practical terms was this. Access to God was limited. You couldn't walk into the holy of holies. Even if you were an incredibly committed Jew, you couldn't walk into the Holy of Holies. Even if you were an important Jew, you couldn't walk into the Holy of Holies. Even if you were a priest, even if you had duties and responsibilities in the tabernacle, you couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. High priest, once a year. Access to God was limited over and over again. And that access to God was limited until finally Jesus Christ died on the cross. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, you remember the New Testament says that the curtain dividing the Holy of Holies from the holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. It was just torn open. This massive heavy curtain. Why? Because access to God was now open. Jesus is better. Jesus is the one that came along and said, I'm going to show you how this works. I want you to notice it says in verses 6 and 7, uh, excuse me, in verse 5 when he says, but of these things we cannot now speak in detail, he is simply saying, that's not my point. I don't want to go into that right now. I want to talk about something else. He says, now when these things have been so prepared, in verse 6, the priests are continually entering the outer court tabernacle, providing, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of people committed in ignorance. They were divine services. They had to continually trim the wicks. They had to add oil to the lampstand. They had to put incense on the altar. They had to change the 12 loaves of bread over and over again. They were continually performing this duty. The high priests and all of those people that were associated with the high priest, they were around this place constantly, but only once a year could the high priest go in. And he took the blood. And he offered a sacrifice for himself, and he offered a sacrifice for the people so that they could have their sins dealt with. And then they had to do it again, and do it again, and do it again, and do it again. Indulge me a little bit this morning, if you would, please. I want to read to you from the John MacArthur Hebrews commentary a little bit about this whole thing to help you get a little bit of a feel about what the Jewish person listening to this would have been thinking and what they would have experienced in their life. Whenever an Israelite sinned, his communion with God was broken. Consequently, the sacrifices for sin were never finished and the priest's work was never done. In spite of the continual sacrificing, however, many unknown or forgotten sins would accumulate for which no sacrifice had been made. The Day of Atonement was intended to make sacrifice for all those sins which had not yet been covered. The devout Jew longed for the Day of Atonement. He could not himself go into God's presence, but the high priest could go in for him, and he would be delivered. 
Very early on the Day of Atonement, the high priest cleansed himself ritually and put on his elaborate robes with the breastplate near his heart, signifying that he carried the people in his heart, and the ephod on his shoulder, signifying that he had power on their behalf. He was representing the twelve tribes. Then he began his daily sacrificing. Unlike Christ, he had to sacrifice for his own sin. Very likely, he would have already slaughtered 22 different animals by the time he reached the event known as the Atonement. It was an exceptionally busy day and a bloody thing that he did on this day. After finishing all these sacrifices, he took off the robes of glory and beauty and went and bathed himself again completely. He then put on a white linen garment with no decoration or ornament at all and performed the sacrifice of the atonement. In this ritual, the high priest symbolized Jesus Christ, who in his true and perfect work of atonement stripped off all of his glory and beauty and become the, became the humblest of the humble. In the garment of white linen, the high priest took coals off of the bronze altar where the sacrifice was going to be made. He put them in a gold censer with incense and carried it into the Holy of Holies. Here again is a beautiful picture of Christ interceding, interceding for his own before God's presence. Then the high priest went out. He took the bull that was purchased with his own money because it was to be offered for his own sin. After slaughtering the bull and offering the sacrifice, he had another priest assist him in catching the blood as it drained off. He swirled some of it in a small bowl and carried it into the Holy of Holies where he sprinkled it on the mercy seat. The people could hear the bells on his robe as he moved about. He hurried out and people breathed a sigh of relief at seeing him. Had he entered the Holy of Holies ceremonially unclean, he would have been struck dead. When he came out, two goats were waiting for him by the bronze altar. In a small urn were two lots determining which goat would be used for which purpose. One lot was marked for the Lord and for the other, Azael, Zel, the scapegoat. As each lot was drawn, it was tied to the horn of the goat of one of the goats. The goat designated for Jehovah was then killed on the altar. Its blood was caught in the same way as that of the bull and was swirled about in the bowl and was carried into the Holy of Holies. This blood, too, was sprinkled on the mercy seat, but this time for the sins of the people. And again, he hurried back out. He then placed his hands on the goat that remained, the scapegoat, symbolically placing the sins of the people on the goat's head. That goat was never take, was then taken far out into the wilderness and turned loose to be lost and never to return. The first goat represented satisfaction of God's justice in that sin had been paid for. The second represented satisfaction of man's conscience because he knew he was free from the guilty penalty of sin. Still again, we see Christ. In his own death, he paid for man's sin, therefore satisfying God's justice. And he also carried our sins far from us, giving us peace of conscience and mind. He satisfied both God and man. The two goats actually are two parts of one offering. Leviticus 16 says, And he shall take from the congregation of the sons of Israel two male goats for a sin offering. They represented propitiation and pardon, two aspects of the atoning sacrifice. And I wanted to read that, and I wanted you to hear that, just to, for you to understand that when we go through something like this, and we're reading in Hebrews, and it says, but into the second only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood. It was a complicated, overwhelming event. It was big stuff. And it was done in order to deal with the people's sins. And of course, you had the scapegoat, and he was sent off into the wilderness, separating the sins of the people from themselves. And it had to be done all the time. Specifically, this picture once a year. But their sins had to be dealt with all of the time. So our author goes through all of this, verses 1 through 8, or 1 through 7, and then he says this in the beginning of verse 8. 
The Holy Spirit is signifying this. In other words, what our author says is, so what's the point? Why did you tell me all that? Why did you go through all of that? And that's an easy thing for us to say at this point. Okay, well, why do we do all that? What is the point? What is being said? What is being taught? What in the world is going on? And so he says that the Holy Spirit is saying this. The Holy Spirit is showing this. The Holy Spirit is signifying this. He's saying by these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed what? What in the world is the Holy Spirit teaching? What is he telling us? And he's telling us this in verse 8. The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. In other words, what the author is saying and what the Holy Spirit is teaching us by all the things that went on in the tabernacle and in the temple day after day and year after year is this. The way to God is not open to everyone yet. The way to God is not there. This holy place has not yet been disclosed. The way to God is not there. The, the, the entry to God is not there yet in a simple way. It's been through all of these hoops that they had to jump through, and only the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies once a year. Can you imagine? Sure, you can approach God. In about nine months and ten days, come on back. Because that's when we get to go into the Holy of Holies. That's when we really do business with God, is on that day. Until then, here are the things that I want you to do to make sure that you're where you need to be until that day finally comes and we can really make sure that things are taken care of at that time. All of this is laid out for us to understand as we're reading this now in the New Testament times, way past the Old Testament, is for us to understand that that system didn't work, that system was inadequate, that system did not allow a good, proper way to God. Jesus did and does. That's what he's teaching us here. That is the point. And I think it's incredibly important that we notice verse 9, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worship perfect in conscience. They cannot help that person. Because it says in verse 10, they relate only to food and to drink and various washings and regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. Those things were never going to make that person righteous before God. Those things were never going to allow that person to stand in the presence of God without any issue at all because they were righteous. It was not going to happen until the time of reformation, it says in verse 10. Reformation, when things come to pass when things are dealt with, when things are done in the way they need to be done, that a person was never going to be able to stand in the presence of God without any fear, without any shame, without any issues, until Jesus Christ died on the cross to make the way to God accessible. That's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us. There was no perfect sacrifice in the Old Testament. It did not matter how often and how well the high priest cleansed himself. It did not matter how pure and perfect those garments that he put on were. It did not matter 
how absolutely carefully they had treated that lamb and that bull and that goat, and they had made sure that it was perfect in every single way, that it was babied and cared for and tenderly taken care of. It was never going to be good enough. Jesus Christ came along, and His sacrifice was good enough. Once for all. The way to God, as long as the tabernacle or the temple was standing, was an inadequate way to God. It was a limited way to God. Do not go backwards in your thinking. Do not ever go back to a system whereby it's, it's the access to God is through hoop jumping. Don't ever go back to a system whereby you have to do all of these things in order to come into the presence of God. Because as soon as you go back to that system, you're saying Jesus isn't enough. And the Bible is saying and declaring Jesus is enough. How do we come to God? Through Jesus. How are our sins forgiven? Through Jesus. How is propitiation made? Through Jesus. How is it that God's wrath is satisfied? Through Jesus. How is it that we're made righteous? Through Jesus. How is it that we gain into heaven and are in His presence forever? It's through Jesus. It's not through anything else. It's not through anything you've done. It's not through anything that you've added. It's through Jesus and Jesus alone. And that's what the Bible is teaching us here. And the author of Hebrews is going into great detail to help us understand that that system is not good enough. And the sad thing about what has gone on with religion since this day this was written and before, the sad thing about religion is that religious organizations and religious people and religious things have been doing their best to find a way to replace the tabernacle and the temple. Let's find some system. Let's find something whereby there's a way to approach God. And every time they've come up with something, they've come up with something that's not good enough. Access to God is limited. Access to God is not free. It's inadequate. It's not perfect. And it will never, never, never work. Jesus works. Let's notice what he says in the next couple of verses, beginning at verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So our author comes along and he says, the tabernacle wasn't good enough, the entire system wasn't good enough, the temple wasn't good enough, the high priest wasn't good enough, all the cleansing wasn't good enough because it never, it never created perfection, it never worked enough to, with your conscience, it never did it, but Jesus came along. And Jesus entered into a tabernacle not made with hands. Jesus entered into the tabernacle of heaven. In other words, he was in the presence of the Father because he is God. And Jesus didn't use the blood from some inadequate, old, rotten animal. Jesus used his own blood, and he paid the price. And the Bible says that he obtained eternal redemption. How many times did Jesus have to die on the cross? One. And what do you need to do after that? Just believe. Because he obtained eternal redemption. 
eternal redemption. I know that there are, there are, there's teaching out there that believes that, that we can lose our salvation. Listen, if Jesus obtained, obtained eternal redemption, you can't lose it. It's eternal. It's yours. He gave it to you. He redeemed you for all of eternity. He said, you're mine. Nothing can change that. Because He is better. You see, those who believe that you can lose your salvation, in effect, are hanging around a tabernacle way of thinking, aren't they? You have to do it again. And you have to do it again. And you have to do it again. And oops, you crossed some imaginary line. You better do something to fix it so you can go to heaven now. The Bible says it's an eternal redemption. The Bible says that Jesus' death on the cross was enough to keep you saved from the moment you got saved throughout all of eternity, and nothing can ever change that. It's an eternal redemption. It's a temporary cleansing versus an eternal redemption. The Old Testament talked about this cleansing that went on for a while, just a little bit. You had to do it again. Well, then you need to do it again. And you need to do it again. But Jesus came along, the Reformation, to straighten out, to make right. He did it. He did away with all the cleansing. He did away with all the sacrifices. He became the sacrifice. He made all things new. And He eternally set things in the right order, never to be messed with again. you got to love verse 12. And not through the blood of goats and calves, but through His own blood. It reminds you of of 1 Peter, doesn't it? When he said, we're not saved with that old junky cheap stuff like gold and silver and precious jewels that you think are so important. We're saved with the blood of Jesus Christ, which is better than anything. Isn't that an amazing, wonderful thing? Verses 13 and 14. How much more? How much more? If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of heifers sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify them for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serving the living God? It, it, it's, it's that idea that if that system back then was able to do anything for you at all, how much more, Jesus? How, how, how much better is Jesus? How much purer is Jesus? How much cleaner is Jesus? If you thought that that system was even that good, can you imagine how remarkably great the system of Jesus is? It's way better, is what he is saying. Way better. He's perfect. He's unblemished. And he's willing I don't believe there were a lot of animals lined up to say, choose me, choose me. But Jesus said, Father, I'll do your will. Choose me. He was perfect, he was unblemished, and he was willing. And it's an eternal redemption. I want you to notice also, it says in these verses here, in verse 14, that this blood of Christ this remarkable gift that He has done. Well, let me back up to verse 9 and look at verse 9. It says, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscious. conscience. Verse 14, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience 
from dead works. Here's what the Bible is teaching us. Not only is Jesus good enough to save you once and for all, Jesus and his sacrifice is good enough to change your approach to thinking and acting and existing right now today. Yes, you have sinned. Yes, you have committed hideous, horrible things. And I know that because I have sinned and committed hideous and horrible things. And yet because of Jesus Christ and because of His blood and because of His offering and because His salvation is a complete salvation, we are not held down with guilt over those things. We're set free in Jesus Christ to live and to serve Him right now. And there is no religious system in this world that can ever do that for you. You can work and work and work and work and work, and you will always have that little bit of, yeah, but I did that. that that's, I, I did that. But with Jesus Christ, forgiven is gone. He's not interested in what you do. He died for, He covered it with His blood, He cleansed you from your conscience which was dead and made you alive so that you could serve Him, the living God, these days, right now. Jesus is better. So much better. You see, verse 14 is an incredibly important verse because we oftentimes don't quite go that far. We talk about salvation all the time, and we should. We talk about redemption, and we should. We talk about propitiation, and we should. But the verse says that what Jesus has done is He has cleansed, cleansed our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. According to the Bible, what is it that needs to be done for us to be where we need to be as a believer, back again in His presence, friends with God, standing before Him without any guilt or fear or shame, the Bible says it is simply confession. Why? Because His blood is good enough. And so if you, if you are dealing with what you've done, you need to, first of all, have you confessed? Have you properly confessed? Have you repented of that sin? And then have you gone on by faith understanding that He doesn't hold that against me anymore. That's over. I can now serve the living God with a clear conscience because of Jesus Christ and His blood. You see, the salvation of Jesus is transforming right now. Not just for when we die and get to go to heaven. Right now, it's transforming. Jesus is better in every single way. Jesus is our Redeemer. And He has redeemed us eternally. And He has given us the Holy Spirit that we might serve Him with a clean conscience. Jesus is better. As we begin a brand new year, we do so by celebrating the Lord's Supper this morning. By remembering that I have the life I have because of what Jesus has done for me. And hopefully what the Holy Spirit has done 
with this passage in your life this morning will just help the Lord's Supper even come alive more than it ever has before for you. That we can understand what He did and what it means, not just for being in His presence when I die, but for being transformed right now, cleansed from that dead conscience, able to serve that living God, saved to serve, saved to love, saved to make a difference for Jesus Christ. In a minute, we're going to sing a song. We're going to go into the Lord's Supper, and we just want to worship. We just want to lift up our voices to Him. We want to just meditate and talk to Him and praise Him and thank Him and adore Him for what He has done for us. Father, we thank You so very much for this truth in the Scriptures that Jesus is better and complete and He has done it all. Father, as we think about all that this passage says, comparing the old to the new, as we think about how Jesus Christ opened up the way to heaven, as we think about Jesus Christ cleansing us from our sins and saving us and giving us eternal redemption, satisfying God's wrath, as we think about our conscience being cleansed, that we might now be alive to You, I just pray that You would you would actually just lift us up, Lord. That we would just look beyond the physical things that are going on right now and worship You and celebrate You and just be in Your presence rejoicing and glorifying the Lamb who has done what He's done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.